I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I want to introduce you to three people. My name is Alicia. Alicia, who lives just outside of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Jess, a Parks and Rec employee currently living in Indiana. And I've been listening to the podcast since it started, I'm pretty sure. And Kevin. Other than St. Louis, I'm a special education teacher. All three of them are pretty big fans of Outside In. I think I've listened to just about every episode. We think that this show is fun and interesting and educational. We think that we're teaching people about stuff they didn't know before. But do we know for sure? No, we do not. Like, does anybody remember the stuff that we talked about last month or last year? Producer Taylor Quimby called up these three outside-in fans to do a little trivia to test their knowledge about the show and about the natural world that we report on. Are shark attacks more common on the east or west coast of the United States? Ooh, well, I just, you did just have that shark attack episode. I think it's the West Coast. West Coast. That is correct. East Coast. You got to go back and listen to the episode. (laughs) Yeah, I will. (laughs) Which of these birds have we not talked about on the program in some depth? The loggerhead shrike, the pileated woodpecker, or the bicknell's thrush? Oh, I talk about birds so often that I don't know what you've talked about and what I've talked about. I think, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. The shrike? I know you've talked about the shrike. Um, The shrike impales its victims on the thorns. Um, I don't think you've talked about the woodpecker. You are correct. Wow, that was a tough one. I'm going to play you a sound. I want to I know if you can tell me what this sound is. Oh, boy. I don't know. Is it like a wind turbine? It's a bird, isn't it? I might be wrong. Ice cracking. <gasps> you got it! If you're anything like these folks... You love to learn about the natural world and to share what you learn with the people around you. A week ago, I sent her the episode about beavers. And I actually told uh, my co-worker, who is a fisher. That's um, why, if you donate 20 bucks a month or give a one-time gift of $250, we'll thank you with a ticket to our Outside In Trivia Night. Questions about the natural world and how we use it. 
The date is to be determined, and the venue will be somewhere in or around Concord, New Hampshire, but that's to be determined as well. What I can tell you is that it's going to be very fun, an opportunity to meet the team, celebrate the pursuit of knowledge, and to pitch yourself against other fans of the show. And there's only going to be 25 tickets to this shebang, so give now and join the party. Without your support, we wouldn't be producing episodes of Outside In, straight up. And so this community of listeners from New Hampshire to California and everywhere in between, this is your community. The education, the way that the stories are presented, to thank you on behalf of everyone who listens. It it is truly a joy. So support the show and put your knowledge to the test. There's a link to donate in the show notes or head over to outsideinradio.org. Thanks. Hello, my dear Outside In listeners. We've had some time off. Thank you for your patience. But now we are back with a series that we're really, really proud of. It launches today, and it's called Patient Zero. Not only will we be releasing seven, yes, seven episodes, but also for folks who have donated to Outside In or to NHPR, we're going to be releasing like... like what? Five? A hundred? I don't know. Twenty-seven. <laughs> We're not really set on the number, but at least five bonus episodes as well. The first season is about Lyme disease. This is Taylor, by the way. Who's hosting the podcast. Yes. Uh, The first season is about Lyme disease, which is a really confusing subject. And if you live somewhere where you are at risk of getting it, it's kind of scary, too. I can guarantee you that if you listen to this whole podcast and the bonus episodes, you will be much less confused. You might even be equipped to talk about this disease and the controversy that surrounds it in an informed way. At a barbecue where you like really want to just dive into something kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Probably won't be your choice. It'll be that weird uncle yeah, who yeah. brought it up. Yeah. All right. That's about it. Enjoy the episode. Um, let's start with symptoms. Okay. What were they? I was completely exhausted. Could barely keep my eyes open. My legs felt like lead weights walking up the stairs was really hard. Um, and I had a rash, ovalish, circularish rash. Just just reddish. Reddish, yeah. Sleep okay? Um, I wanted to sleep all the time. Yeah. How long? Two weeks of that before I finally went to a clinic. Okay. What kind of clinic was it? Uh, convenient MD, I want to say. Okay, so one of those. Like a minute clinic yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And they said? Lyme disease. Right off the bat? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got tested. Went to work. A few days later, I got a call. And I was told that I had Lyme disease. I was told that I had Lyme disease and that they were going to put me on doxycycline. So, so you go back in? Yeah. And what do they tell you? They, I have a different doctor this time. I go back into the clinic. This is not me going to my primary care person. And I'm told that I might never have had Lyme to begin with. At the same clinic they said that? Same clinic. And I was told that the doctor who saw me before was a, quote, Lyme doctor. You're, you're air quoting. Like that's a bad thing to be a Lyme doctor. Yeah. It wasn't explicitly stated to me that way. But it was a, it was a younger very fresh-faced doctor who was seeing me the next time, and she kind of just short of rolled her eyes. Hmm. What did that feel like? I felt, I felt, I don't know if unsafe is the word, 
just sort of upended. I was frustrated. I'd never seen a doctor imply mistrust in another doctor before. This whole experience made me feel crazy and like I'm a hypochondriac. For sure. It made me question myself a lot. My name is Taylor Quimby. Hi. For those of us lucky enough to grow up healthy, the procedures of Western medicine can be oddly reassuring. Lab coats, clipboards, that roll of crinkly paper on the exam room table, all part of a system that seems tidy and well understood. That, to some extent, is an illusion. Would you be more or less likely to trust a doctor in the future? I'm already less likely. I can tell you that much. There are lots of diseases that leave us with more questions than answers. But when it comes to Lyme disease, the illusion seems especially thin. Like the guts of the system are exposed. We don't know everything. We don't know how it works. There is no silver bullet. I don't think we have enough data to determine that. It's okay to tell patients you don't know. Uh, we, we have a question for every answer. I call this place Lyme World. That's where my colleague Hannah wound up when she was diagnosed with Lyme a couple of years ago. Scientists have spent whole careers in this void trying to fill the gaps. Lyme disease is a microcosm of what we see in the country. Patients have stumbled in, unsure of who to trust or what to believe. She literally had doctors saying, oh, just go play tennis. You're just bored or you're depressed because you're just a housewife. And charlatans have stepped into the vacuum, too, to prey on the patients who are desperate for answers. Anything that's too good to be true in medicine is too good to be true. This is not a show about Lyme disease. This is a show about uncertainty. This is a show about the line that divides medicine and culture, about the spaces where people and pathogens collide. This is Patient Zero. There's something you should know about the name of this podcast. Patient Zero, which may be the only term from the science of epidemiology to have breached the pop culture divide, is a misnomer. It was lifted from a CDC document during the AIDS crisis. The zero actually stood for the letter O, meaning the patient who lived outside of California. After the error was printed, the media glommed on, the incident turned into a homophobic, complicated mess. The real phrase used by scientists when identifying the first documented patient in an epidemiological investigation, is index case. The term isn't as sexy, but it's important nonetheless. An index case can tell you all sorts of things about an epidemic, and for this show, I hoped it might shed some light on why Lyme disease is so confusing. So this spring, I drove to a town in Connecticut. I was searching for a woman who was, in her own fashion, the index case that started it all, the patient zero of Lyme World. The destination is on your left, 170 Joshua Town Road. Let's see if anybody's home. This is where she lived. 
in a blocky white colonial home at the top of a long hill less than a mile from the banks of the Connecticut River, surrounded by sun-dappled forest, a messy yard, dog out front. Hey, sorry to bug you on a Sunday. The owner, Glenn Steinmacher, bought the house three or four years back. Didn't really know her. She, uh, yeah, so she had like that one room right here was like her, doesn't look like that anymore, but she had like cabinets and stuff, which is just, it was, I guess that was her office. I mean, I don't know what she did, to yeah. be honest with you. So. Yeah, yeah. But she left a couple boxes, he said, in the attic, dropped them off at a town hall. He tells me they're probably still there. He said he dropped off a box, a big bin of her old stuff. At Town Hall, the first selectman, Steve Matson, tells me to go next door, to the library. The archives are in the library. It's closed on Mondays, but if I go around to knock on the back window, the archivist there might let me in. Um, I was just speaking with the, the first selectman next door. Yeah, I'm not really open today, and, but uh, uh, come on. Okay, thank you. Um, I, won't, I won't be a bother. Yes. Yeah. Well, first of all, if you want to lean down and get that box. Sure. This one? Yeah, it's stuff that came from her house. Right. Yeah. And sure enough, there on the floor, wedged under a filing cabinet, are two cardboard boxes. One of them is filled with old papers, letters, journals, and photocopied articles. It looks like it belonged to a spy, or maybe a hoarder, or a conspiracy theorist. And the other is filled with tapes. Cassette tapes. Maybe a hundred of them. The library where I found this box? It's in Lyme, Connecticut. The town where the disease found its name. And this is where I first heard her voice. Polly Murray. Patient Zero. I'm testing this and seeing whether it works or not. And I can see that the buzzer is sort of flickering, so I may have to get another battery. These tapes and papers, this is her collection. This is her legacy. Fortunately, it came back, uh, I didn't have it. Well, that's one of the problems, is that doctors don't check for Lyme disease. Mm. Matters worse, the disease is carried by a tick. How do you know when the tick is feeding on you? Look for a comma that moves. I felt that there was some something there, but the medical profession said, well, there is no such disease that, that exists that has the, the number, number of symptoms, symptoms that you are exhibiting. But we're not ready to hear this story. Not just yet. First, we need a little training. First, we need to learn about how disease moves through the world. And then we can learn about Polly. UN troops driven from Old Baldy in the bloodiest fighting of the winter see American bombers pulverize the dug-in reds on the battle-scarred knob of rock and sand. In 1951, the U.S. was fighting in the Korean War, and an imposing man named Dr. Alexander Langmuir was head of the epidemiology branch of what would later become the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Biological warfare defense was a very hot issue. I was thoroughly versed. And I argued that if there was anything to this, there was need for epidemiologists. Epidemiology is a study of patterns and pathogens. How does disease move through society? Who gets infected? And how do we stop an epidemic? And he made the argument that we needed a cadre of 
physicians that were trained, that had the clinical knowledge, and then had this additional epidemiological training if we were attacked by a biological agent. I love that word cadre. Something really serious about it. Well, we deal with serious things. This is Captain Eric Pevsner. Today, he heads the Epidemic Intelligence Service, the cadre of scientists that was created in 1951 by Alexander Langmuir. The CDC's nickname for them? The disease detectives. The bugs are the killers. And they're trying to determine and find, just as a detective would try and identify the person that's committing the crime, we're trying to identify the cause. Epidemiologists are first and foremost investigators, which is one reason why hospital dramas and police procedurals share a TV formula. Shows like House MD, a character created to be a medical model of Sherlock Holmes. Differential diagnosis, people. If it's not a tumor, what are the suspects? Why couldn't she talk? Do you watch, like, Bones or House MD, or have you seen any of those shows? So, you know, as a kid, my favorite shows growing up was a show called Emergency. And then I used to sneak in and try and watch shows that my parents would watch, like St. Elsewhere or Hill Street Blues. You know, it's funny. It seems to me that the biggest danger you face isn't disease or malpractice. It's complacency. But one of the big things that differentiates epidemiology from detective work is the scale. If identifying a disease is akin to catching a criminal, then epidemiologists are studying crime as a whole. Or perhaps a better word would be terrorism. Because disease is a matter of national security. An outbreak, or just the threat of an outbreak, can bring a city to its knees. Before we dive into Lime World, before we hear the story of Polly Murray, we're going to hear about another epidemic, about what it's like on the ground. You have to bear in mind that health officials are notorious for downplaying the risks of an outbreak. This is Dr. Lawrence Altman, an internist, former disease detective, and a longtime veteran of the New York Times, where he covered medicine and disease for decades. He's such a legend, he was even referenced in an episode of The West Wing. You'll want to take the first question from Lawrence Altman, the Times chief medical correspondent. Why? Because if you call on anyone else, the first question will be about re-election. Call on Altman, it'll be a medical question, and he'll have two or three follow-ups. It'll allow As both a doctor and a journalist, Dr. Altman has covered AIDS, Ebola, polio. He's been through some of the most controversial and most complicated outbreaks of disease in modern history. In other words, he knows the drill. Happy birthday, Uncle Sam! ABC News goes to the great American birthday party. Well, I think it was uh, midsummer. It was pretty hot. And when the first cases came, uh, I had an element of um, healthy skepticism. Philadelphia, July 1976. The country is celebrating 200 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Dr. Altman is working for the New York Times when he hears news about a group of veterans hospitalized with high fevers and a pneumonia-like illness. What do they all have in common? They all attended a conference in a stately building called the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. On August 2nd, Dr. Altman got into a car in the middle of the night and drove to a hotel in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And all the time I was listening to the radio to keep me awake. But it was impossible to escape the repetitious news accounts. There are more deaths in Pennsylvania from a disease still Every not so identified. Often, a new killer disease appears that the immune system can't... Blame it on the Bellevue water, blame it on the Bellevue thing, food. The conference at the Bellevue Stratford was massive. There had been 2,000 attendees, and the CDC had recently warned of a new variety of swine flu that was spreading that summer. 
So if these were the first cases of an especially virulent infectious disease, you have to know the implications could have been enormous. Imagine the millions of breaths that had been taken inside that hotel over a couple of days. Inhales, exhales, coughs, sneezes, hundreds of shared meals, thousands of business cards passed from person to person, tens of thousands of handshakes. And then those 2,000 people all returning home, scattering to different corners of the country. If you're a disease detective trying to figure out what's going on, what happens next? Uh, What happens next? In a typical response, health workers and epidemiologists and other scientists will launch a drill, and they'll follow a mental, if not a written, checklist. It's the checklist of a disease detective. Who, what, where, when, and why. What are the patient's symptoms? And what are the signs that the doctors can uh, observe? And little things, did the patient have a rash? Have the symptoms and signs changed? When did the health department learn about And who told the health officials? How many other hospitals are involved? And what's their geographical And possibly they will also talk with a spouse or family. Each interview, they ask every possible relevant question. Who did you meet? Where did you go? What did you eat? Who did you sleep with? Epidemiologists are trying to outline the course of the illness from start to finish, and they're tracing the contacts of every suspected case. Each contact leads to another set of interviews, which leads to more contacts, which leads to more interviews. I remember going out and uh, interviewing a patient. His temperature had risen to 107.4 degrees before he was put in a cooling blanket. So he was really sick. This effort and investigation will continue if it takes a year or two years to continue the investigation. Preliminary tests at that point is nobody knew what the cause was. Remember all of those places where something could have happened? The pool, the elevator, the banquet hall? Or maybe there's a clue somewhere else, at an after party or local restaurant. On Friday the 23rd, how often did you ride the main elevator? And epidemiologists will not overlook the possibility that meeting participants may not have stayed at the hotel. The hotel could be a red herring. At the go-getter's breakfast on Friday, did you have the coffee? Did you just the coffee? No, no room. You may think about disease from a patient's perspective. A person gets sick, is tested, diagnosed, and treated. But the way disease spreads... The way it moves through and between networks of human beings touches literally every aspect of our shared lives. And that is where epidemiologists exist. They're not simply investigating pathogens. They're investigating the connections between pathogens and people. To illustrate my point, let me tell you about a basic tool that scientists use for this very purpose. It's called the epidemiological triangle. One point of the triangle is the agent— This is the disease. It could be a bacteria or fungus or virus. The second point on the triangle is the host. That's us. But it's the third point. The third point of the triangle that I think makes everything so much more complicated. The third point is the environment. That point of the triangle includes our landscapes. Our proximity to animals. To insects. It includes what we eat. What we drink, handshakes, kisses, hugs, sex. It can be our urban design, sewers, our wars, religion, race, and income inequality. 
all of them play a role in deciding which pathogens connect with which people. Which is why there is no single expert, no single discipline when it comes to understanding an epidemic. Epidemiology is not simply a branch of science. It's a scientific process. Back to Philadelphia in 1976, where a mysterious illness had the city in a panic. The CDC sent 20 epidemiologists to help with the investigation, the biggest team of disease detectives in the agency's history. And following behind was Dr. Altman, a former epidemiologist currently working for the New York Times. It was a big story, but I didn't see it in those terms. I just saw it as, here's an outbreak that needs to be solved. All in all, 221 veterans had gotten sick. 34 died. Investigators had ruled out a bacterial infection, a virus, and landed on an unlikely culprit, nickel carbonyl poisoning. Dr. William Sunderman, the chief toxicologist, does pretty well established that it was nickel carbonyl. But it was another red herring, a screw-up. When testing the sick veterans for nickel poisoning, scientists had been collecting samples using nickel scalpels. The nickel rubbed off, contaminating the samples, and the positive tests were bogus. And the theory, like all the ones that came before, collapsed. And that was an embarrassment to a lot of the CDC scientists. And uh, one of them went back into the lab in that period of time and took a second look at the specimens that he had looked at uh, during the outbreak. And lo and behold, this time, he saw the infectious agent. It was a bacteria, a type of pathogen that investigators had entirely ruled out as the possible cause. It had formed in the air conditioning system of the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. And it's the pathogen that causes what we now call Legionnaire's disease. That's how the identification was made. It was a second look. And believe it or not, such second looks were not commonly and thoroughly done in outbreaks of uh, undetermined uh, origin or cause. And what's important is this is the type of information scientific journals rarely publish. The net effect of that is to create a false impression that investigations and discoveries are simpler than they really are. What Dr. Altman is saying is that history papers over just how hard this work really is. False starts don't make it into scientific journals. Epidemiologists are trying to put a puzzle together in the dark without ever having seen the picture on the box. And when you go to the doctor for something that's been figured out, you see the puzzle without any idea what went into it. So let's turn on the light and appreciate just how complex this really was. Consider our epidemiological triangle. You've got the hosts, the legionnaires, the pathogen, a bacteria that causes respiratory and gastrointestinal problems, and the environment. A hot spell in July when air conditioning is on nonstop, a bacteria that likes hot, damp places, not unlike the confined cooling towers in the hotel's AC units, a city celebrating a pivotal moment in its history, a hotel, a busy place where lots of people were exposed to the bacteria in a short period of time, and a moment of intense scrutiny, where public fears put the largest ever group of epidemiologists under pressure to figure out what was making people sick. And it's a a reminder that uh, scientists have to be humble. Uh, Health officials may not be able to solve all aspects of an outbreak 
or to answer all the questions that are raised. Are you coming to the conclusion now that perhaps there will never be an answer to Legionnaire's Uh, I think that's a very, very good possibility. What are the implications of that, Dr. Sensor? Well, I think it it sort of um, uh, humbles us and and makes us realize that there are things that we just don't know. Uh, Humility. As we move forward, as we step into Lime World, we'll be tempted to jump to conclusions, to play favorites, to identify the heroes and villains of this story. I know I have. But the tale of Legionnaires should teach us it is never that simple, and we have to stay humble. When we come back, we're traveling through time to 1975, the beginning of Lime World as we know it, and an outbreak that is still raising questions 40 years later. I'm standing here in Lyme, Connecticut, at the top of Joshua Town Road, where Polly Murray, who was, for our purposes, the patient zero of Lyme disease, lived until just a few years ago, private, shy, and surrounded by forest. For a time, Polly was celebrated as a sort of canary in the coal mine, a woman who fought the inertia of status quo medicine and sounded the alarm about Lyme disease. As the years pass, I can see that her story is being forgotten, In a lot of online articles and retellings, she's simply described as a concerned mother. But to those who know her story, it's fair to say that concerned would be an understatement. Polly was tenacious. She's a very serious person. Boom, the minute she's up, she is highly industrious. Kind of a perfectionist, and I think that rubbed off on all of us, too. And these are all good qualities, and yet she couldn't relax. Joshua Town Road is where Polly and her ex-husband Gil raised four children. They've scattered now, but I was able to speak with three of them. Alex, nicknamed Sandy, high school soccer star and eldest of the four. Sandy is a proper nickname for Alexander. Todd, the baby and today the most soft-spoken of the Murray family. He had a bad temper um, as a kid, as did I. And finally, Wendy. I, by the way, was named Wendy after Peter Pan, and the dog was Nanny. It was the early 70s. Lyme, Connecticut was a small-town New England paradise, a mix of farms and barns and upper-crust homes. And back then, Polly especially looked like a member of Connecticut nobility. She wore, like, silver jewelry and that beautiful white hair, um, and it looked fabulous. She was an artist, trained at Yale, as straightforward and deliberate as the subjects she captured. Still-life paintings, portraits, landscapes. Sometimes, when her kids were playing, she would shout, freeze, and then she would sketch them where they stood. But outside the bounds of her meticulously gardened backyard, the children were anything but still. We happened to live like a mile from the Connecticut River. Across a brook and through a a patch of cedar trees with moss. Brother would skin his knuckles. One time I got a bad, you know, cut on my rear end. We could actually play cowboys and Indians with with real cows. So it was just... A wonderful childhood of of playing outdoors. You know, there was only so much trouble you could get in playing out in the woods. Do you remember becoming aware of the fact that your family had health issues that were sort of above and beyond what might seem normal? The normal part is what... um, 
at the time was beyond my comprehension. As early as 1964, Polly Murray was chronicling her family's health. Because she's such a, you know, organized, tenacious personality, she would write everything down. So I just remember, you know, being on the phone, chatting with friends, and I'd look down at the calendar and see, you know, these detailed notes of doctor's appointments and symptoms and stuff. Rashes and colds, itchy eyes, sore throats, diarrhea. Every symptom, no matter how commonplace, and every doctor's visit, no matter how perfunctory, wound up on Polly's calendar. That's how I know that on May 20th of 1964, baby Todd was prescribed penicillin for an ear infection. That's how I know that a few days later, he stopped eating and was hospitalized for dehydration, and that the whole family was hit with a gastrointestinal bug not too much later. But most of the time, Polly was documenting her own health problems. You know, she had joint aches and muscle aches. Bruising easily. Pinpick rashes. Sun sensitivity. Kind of arthritis in her fingers. Trouble sleeping. Co- you know, the word coping was, you know, used as frequently as the or and, it seemed. Like, my mom was so beset by so much. Polly was convinced that her various symptoms, which came and went on an almost daily basis, were part of some larger pattern that they were all connected somehow. I mean, she was a layperson, but she had a good aptitude for science. Before art school, she had spent a summer in Copenhagen, working as an assistant for the World Health Organization's tuberculosis research office. She wasn't a medical professional, but she was medically minded, driven to read research journals and medical literature. But for doctors who are used to being the authority in the examination room, that aptitude can come off as meddling. Reading the dynamic between my mom and Dr. Irving and... He was so personable and um, respectful, but at the same time, I remember that little girl feeling of, like, my mom is being a pain in the butt here. Like, she's, she's too serious. She's, she's asking too many questions. Um, and so kind of being embarrassed by it. Over several years, she saw a grab bag of experts who examined her for lupus, they tested her for psoriasis and for rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid problems, and hypoglycemia. Some doctors were supportive. Some were dismissive. But nobody had any answers. She literally had doctors saying, oh, just go play tennis. Um, You're just bored or you're depressed because you're just a housewife. I mean, and she didn't make this stuff up. One doctor told her her symptoms were psychosomatic and that she needed a psychotherapist. So Polly saw one. And the psychotherapist told her she was depressed because she had a chronic illness that nobody could identify. You know, there's something that happens to the personality, too, when you're chronically ill and not getting the the support from the medical community. Um, You know, it changes your whole demeanor. Um, and it was just very striking. It really brought back memories of, of my mom, kind of embattled. If things had ended here, Polly Murray may have been forever labeled as an overly anxious, neurotic warrior, as the H-word, a hypochondriac. And despite her convictions, she would later write that she had her doubts. Maybe she was crazy. But then, in the mid-1970s, new symptoms appeared, ones that couldn't be easily dismissed as a figment of her imagination, because she was not the one experiencing them. You know, the first thing I remember was, it was the night of my my eighth grade graduation, and as I said, it was kind of like, 
you know, long white dresses and the boys were in suits and just very charming. But it was a big deal, graduation. And um, Todd that day um, got an excruciating headache. I mean, like out of the blue. We were in the sunshine having a, you know, sitting on the grass having class. And I noticed this bullseye rash up here. We went to the doctor who didn't really know what it was. I think he described it as erythema circonatum, which just means red ring. A couple days later, or maybe a week later, I got severe muscle aches and fever and developed severe crushing, throbbing headaches. I developed a swollen knee. um, And I remember about that time, Alex also had swollen knees. I all of a sudden developed uh, very bad water on the knee. We were at a river swimming, my, my dad and I, and he turned around and he had a giant bullseye rash on his upper back. That following winter, he also developed swollen knees. The, the primary treatment was to drain fluid out of the knee. He went to a doctor and uh, was told it was a spider bite. Four out of the six members of the Murray family had symptoms. Only Wendy and their other son, David, seemed to be fine. One of us said, yeah, we're the wellies. David and I were, you know, escaping most of it. And they were the sickies. You know, and so I remember when that happened, just feeling like, you know, this kid just can't catch a break. So how old were you at this point? I was about 11 or 12, taking up to 16 aspirin a day, which... I remember I actually got toxic from it and had ringing in my ears at one point and had to have the, the dose decrease. Throughout all of it, Polly Murray was doing what she had always done, documenting doctor's visits, scribbling symptoms in journals, squeezing notes onto her calendars. Polly included a lot of this information in a book called The Widening Circle that she wrote years later. I asked her daughter, Wendy, to read some of the entries. Monday, September 8th. Todd had a checkup with the ophthalmologist, and his eyes were all right. Thursday, September 25th. Sandy's test results were negative, and it was decided that the original test had been contaminated. Saturday, September 13th. We escaped to Watch Hill for a day. The hot sun brought out the rashes. These catalogs are not a pleasant read. They're almost obscene in that anonymous way that medical descriptions can be, where we're forced to think explicitly about the human body and to objectify human beings in the context of their frailty. Wednesday, September 24th. Sandy saw the and frankly, the sheer amount of it all is somewhat incredible, as in not credible. They sound like the words of an obsessive hypochondriac. Friday, September 26th. In desperation, I had a sample of the well water tested. But then... Todd got something that had eluded Polly for years, a diagnosis. Tuesday, September 30th, Todd saw Dr. Espenson, who concluded that Todd had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and should be seen by a rheumatologist. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, or JRA. I'm not sure to what extent they know what causes it, but it's uh, in a, uh, an autoimmune disease where your your body uh, attacks the lining of your joints and causes pain and swelling. Did that diagnosis mean anything to you at that point? Well, 
I think I didn't actually believe the diagnosis. Polly was skeptical, too. In between the doctor's visits and trips to the library, Polly had been speaking to neighbors and friends. And she was hearing stories about other kids with swollen joints, fevers, and rashes. There was Frank Roche's daughter, who lived just one street away from Joshua Town Road. The first time it was swelling of the knees, the size of soccer balls. And, and they treated her for, for a while for rheumatoid, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis because they didn't know what they were doing. And then in Old Lyme, just a few miles south, there was a little girl in a wheelchair. Same diagnosis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. A high school soccer player, JRA. Captain Richard Wright's daughter, Christian, in East Haddam, JRA. His neighbor's child, JRA. There were several kids, I don't know how many exactly, on the local school bus for elementary school, and they all came down with mysterious illnesses of some swelling and rashes. JRA affects about 1 in 10,000 children. Two cases in the town of Lyme would have been unusual, and Polly was seeing three or four on the same street. On October 6, 1975, Polly wrote a letter to her family doctor. And in a patrician manner that almost masks her frustration, she asks, doesn't it seem likely that these problems are connected? Polly had always asked a lot of questions, and she came to appointments with ideas that doctors didn't always like. But she generally took what they said seriously. She took what was prescribed. She went to whichever specialist they sent her to. But a week after writing the letter, she had had enough. Something was happening, and nobody was paying it any attention. Here's Wendy again, reading from Polly's book, The Widening Circle. Wednesday, October 15th. Now Todd's other knee was swollen. I had to call the state health department. I couldn't wait any longer. I knew that I was dealing with something that was on the one hand very real in terms of symptoms, but on the other hand didn't exist in the medical literature, and that I would therefore have to be collected and convincing to whoever was on the other end of the phone at the health department. I told Gil that I had a feeling... The call that I was about to make might turn out to be an important one in the long run. And then I went into the study, spread out my notes before me on the desk, and dialed the number. Polly doesn't remember who she spoke with. She was too nervous, but she explained what she could, and then she hung up the phone and drove Todd to yet another doctor's appointment. While she was there, while the doctor stuck a syringe and extracted fluid from Todd's swollen knee, she told him what she had done, that she had called the state health department. He um, pretty much belittled her and told her she needed to stop persisting with these ridiculous ideas and thinking that there might be some new disease. he had uh, taken a sample of fluid from my knee and had given given it to us to bring to the local lab. And I remember we drove to the lab and she was in tears um, because of how she had been treated by him. In October of 1975... Epidemic intelligence officer David Snydman was working at the Connecticut State Health Department. He had only been assigned there a few months earlier. He was 29 years old. Uh, My wife and I were actually on a 
a two or three week vacation in Europe and I and it was around the time of the World Series. And here's Ken Griffey, the number two hitter of the right fielder, has four hits in this World Series. Two goals. We got back after it was over and there were there were two notes on the desk from two different mothers essentially asking about whether arthritis could be infectious. I don't know how long they had sat there, but but no one else had sort of picked up on it in the office, and so they sort of left it to me. On the next episode of Patient Zero, the investigation begins. You publish it, you put it out there, and people react. Uh, some of it holds up, and some of it does not. That is how progress is made. Patient Zero is produced and reported by me, Taylor Quimby. Projects like this one take time and resources. If you like what you hear, consider making a $20 donation at patientzeropodcast.org. You'll get early access to future episodes, ad-free, and some bonus episodes as well. Editing help for this episode came from Annie Ropeek, Jason Moon, Corey Princell, Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, Nick Capodice, Jackie Helbert, and Todd Bookman. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. Erica Janik is executive producer. Fact-checking for this episode by Amy Tardiff. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions and Disaster Piece. Credit music by Deerhoof. Special thanks to Carolyn Bakdian at the Lyme Public Library and to Dr. Jonathan Edlow. If you want to read a very thorough retelling of the early investigation into Lyme disease, check out his book, Bullseye, Unraveling the Medical Mystery of Lyme Disease. If you've got questions, concerns, or comments about Patient Zero, we want to hear from you. Email us at patientzero at nhpr.org. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Patient Zero.